the concept of conservation photography didn't exist, but I knew that this was not just nature photography. I knew that nature photography deals with taking photographs of the natural world, and this was taking it one step further. It needed that purpose and that activism. So I encourage every photographer who's listening to find the purpose of your work, practice enoughness, and help us tell the story of our planet, change the story and how it ends. Welcome to episode 50 of the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. You just heard from this week's very special guest, conservation photography pioneer, Christina Mittermeier. I'm so, so excited to bring you this special episode today. My name is Graham Dargie. I'm a professional photographer based in the Granite City, Aberdeen in Scotland. This is the podcast where we meet amazing people from around the world who just happen to be some of the best photographers in the world to uncover the insights that took them to the top of their field with the aim of inspiring you to take bold new steps on your photography journey. If you're new here today, welcome. So grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with me. As I said, the 50th episode, yep, bit of a milestone for me, really. Um, Every season of the show has been so satisfying for me to make, but I don't know, there's something about this season that's been extra satisfying. So just want to take a moment to acknowledge my fantastic guest from the last 10 episodes, safari photographer Marlon Toy amazingly creative and versatile Karen Waller from down in Australia, fine art photographer Jonathan Critchley, the volcano lady Ula Lohman, amazing, probably the best car photographer in the world, Stefan Yan, time-traveling Highland portrait photographer Christy Ashton, amazing landscape photographer Wendy Bagnall, astrophotography Jedi Stefano Pellegrini, portrait photographer slash therapist Chris Orwig, and today's wonderful guest, the queen of conservation photography, Christina Mittermeier. Thank you all for generously giving your time to this random wee man from a far corner of Scotland who just called you out of the blue. You've made the show so special. You've influenced my photography and the photography of listeners around the world, and I'm truly grateful. Speaking of listeners, segue uh, to the several thousand of you who have downloaded the show in 71 countries so far this season, from Albania to New Zealand. Thanks so much. I hope you've been challenged and inspired like I have to go deeper on your photography journey. I'm amazed at the reach the podcast has, so thank you for the support. It means a lot. I'd love to connect with you. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Viewfinders Podcast, where you can see what I've been getting up to photography-wise. And if you've been loving the show, then why not subscribe on your favorite podcast platform? And don't hold back, drop a glowing five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps. Viewfinders will be back in the new year, but in the meantime, I'll be resharing some of my all-time favorite episodes to keep you going over the Christmas and New Year period, so look out for that. Okay, my guest today is Christina Mittermeier, also known as Mitty. Christina is a marine biologist to trade, but she became one of the pioneers of conservation photography as we know it when she realized that photographs of the natural world had the power to reach people in a deeper and more immediate way than scientific data alone. In 2005, she founded the International League of Conservation Photographers to provide a platform for photographers working on environmental issues. 
In 2014, Christina and her partner Paul Nicklin, also one of the world's leading conservation photographers, co-founded Sea Legacy, a conservation organization which uses a combination of art, science, visual storytelling and conservation to protect our oceans and build a healthy future for our planet. Christina's work has appeared in hundreds of publications including National Geographic, The New York Times, CNN and Time magazine. Christina is the recipient of many awards including the Smithsonian Conservation Photographer of the Year Award and the Imaging Award for Photographers Who Give Back. She was named one of the 100 Latinos most committed to climate action and is recognized as one of the world's top 40 most influential outdoor photographers by Outdoor Magazine. Earlier this year, she received an honorary doctorate in fine arts from Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. Christina's photography is beautiful, powerful and important. If you already know who Christina is, you'll learn a lot here about her backstory, motivations and outlook on life. If you don't know Christina, you're about to meet a fantastic photographer, an inspirational person who lives on the front line of the battle against climate change and is making a real difference in some of the huge challenges facing our world today. So here we go, episode 50, my conversation with Christina Mittermeier. Christina Mittermeier, welcome to Viewfinders Photography Podcast. How are you? I'm doing great today, Graham. Thank you for having me. No, you're so welcome. I'm super, super excited. You've been on my list for a long time, Paul, as well. Like I was just saying to you off air, your name came up before when I was talking to Robin Moore. But you're one of those people, I, you know, like, I just imagine you're so busy and you probably get media requests all the time. So you're on that list of like people I'll contact one day, you know, sort of aspirational kind of list. So I'm so, so excited to catch up with you today and spend this time. And I'm honored to be here. Thank you. First off, I wanted to ask how you are, because I know you had a cycling accident recently. Yeah, I had a bad accident uh, exactly a month ago, but I have mm -hmm. made an amazing recovery. So free of concussion symptoms, my broken vertebra is healing, all my abrasions are mended, and I will always, forevermore, wear a helmet from here on. Okay, well, there's a lesson for everybody. But you, you seem like really banged up in the picture that I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent the night in the hospital. It's um, e-bikes, you know, they're they're like a motorcycle and they're dangerous. And I was um, not ready for it and I was not wearing a helmet. So my fault completely, but uh, grateful. Some some good Samaritan picked me up from the road and brought me home and, um, and I ended up in the hospital. But the incredible show of love and support from friends and family and followers from all over the world. I got so many flowers. I didn't know what to do with them. And okay. it just shows you that even though it's all digital, we are a massive uh, family community around the world. And I'm grateful. Yeah. Those kind of moments make you realize how kind people are. It's amazing. Um, okay. So I was talking to my daughter this morning. She's six. Um, I said, I can't do bedtime tonight because I'm talking to this lady. She's uh, she's like, well, what does she do? And so I was like, well, she's like saving the planet um, by taking photos of amazing things and animals and showing them to people so that they know why the planet is worth saving. So I wanted to run that by you. Am I getting close or do you want to add or remove anything from that? I, I think you're getting pretty close. It's uh, 
photography is just a very good um, icebreaker to bring people who are normally not thinking about nature, sustainability, the planet in their daily lives and just remind them that um, we live on a spaceship called Earth and we have nowhere else to go and we need to take care of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to mention as well um, that you are receiving award, an award, I should say, um, is the Smith Nature Symposium Distinguished Environmental Leadership Award. Um, so how did that come about and what does that kind of thing mean to you? I think, uh, Graham, as you get older, people just start giving you awards. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's an incredible honor. So this is from um, a group in Chicago. And I'm going to say that Chicago is one of the most philanthropic, most environmentally minded cities. So it's a very, very big honor to be selected. It came about because uh, we have a large community of friends, art collectors, photography enthusiasts in Chicago. And we do a yearly gallery exhibit there with the Hilton Asmus Gallery, who represents us. And so it's expanded our family reach in the Chicago area. And we're incredibly honored to be receiving this award. And so I was going to ask about the exhibition. Is is that called Evolve? That's associated to the award that you're receiving or it's just something you were you were planning anyway? Well, you know, because we are so busy, if we're going to go and spend a few days in Chicago, it's always worth doing more than one thing. And so we organized with the Hilton Asmos Gallery and they're going to put together the exhibit just to take advantage of the fact that we're there. They are an amazing gallery. The owner, um, Erica Hilton, is just one of those big champions for photographers. And she does a beautiful job of convening a community around the photography, presenting the art as art, and just celebrating the work of, of people like myself. So very grateful. So is it more like your art photography that's in that exhibition? Yes, we started our career as both Paul and I, there's so many similarities as editorial photographers, photojournalists, but I cannot speak for Paul, but for me, my aspiration has always been to be an artist and photography has been a really good outlet to express that artistic creativity desire. And so my fine art photography, the stuff that gets printed is very different from my journalistic work. And um, Mm -hmm. I'm very lucky to have somebody to you know, show it, sell it, uh, help me uh, connect with customers and clients. And it really helps me make a living as a photographer. That must be exciting. I'm sure you can't wait to get into that. Um, That brings us to what you're doing now. Let's jump back in time, okay? I read that you were born in Mexico City. Um, I grew up nearby. I'm going to try this in Cuernavaca. Oh, my God. You're almost speaking Spanish now. Yeah. Really? Okay. So... It says uh, on your website that from a young age, you'd always had a deep love for the natural world and the knowledge of indigenous people. And that was accompanied by concern for what's happening to our planet. Um, So you went on to study marine sciences at university. I was wondering if you remember like a moment or an experience that really put that concern and that love for nature into your young heart and mind. Can you think back to anything that triggered that? You know, I, I don't think it was a moment, but um, it, it was just a, the lifestyle, right? My parents put so many books in my hands, and I've been thinking about your six-year-old daughter. I started reading at, at a young age, and I was very interested in adventure books, in science books, in books about animals. 
And of course, we didn't have the distractions of the internet back then. So books were the entertainment. And I loved everything. I loved Jacques Cousteau and I loved uh, pirate books. I, I read a lot of adventure stuff. So that, okay. I think, is where the love comes from. Also, living in the outskirts of Mexico City, where there was still a lot of nature, wild nature. And, uh, okay. you know, still... I'm not going to say traditional indigenous people from Mexico because we we were conquered uh, 500 years ago, so everybody pretty much is colonized. But there's indigenous people who still speak their language and observe a lot of their traditions, and I was very lucky to grow up among them. Mm-hmm. And I think the concern came when I was a teenager. I read a book by Paul Ehrlich. It's called The Population Bomb. I don't know if you've ever come across this book. And in that book, uh, he predicted that population was going to grow exponentially and we were going to run out of resources by 2000. And of course, he got it completely wrong, (laughs) but it scared me. It scared me. And I think it set me on a path of of wanting to look at how, how to live sustainably on this planet, how to make it last for future generations. And I couldn't have articulated that when I was young. It was just something that I carried in my heart. Uh, but yeah, concern for nature, I guess, and a love for animals, Graham. Mm-hmm. So you studied marine sciences, but I, I looked on the map and, you know, Mexico City and the other place I won't try and say again, it's not like that, that close to the coast. So were you were your family going back and forth or how did that kind of take root? No, my, my father was from a small coastal town in the Gulf of Mexico. And we used to go to the beach there. And it was not a beautiful beach. The Gulf of Mexico is not beautiful that way. (laughs) Uh, But it was enough to be very intriguing. I have this memory as a child of going to the beach and a wave picked me up and rolled me and tumbled me. And I'm sure you've had this experience where you are crawling in the bottom and swallowing water with sand. (laughs) Eventually you come up for air. And I thought that was incredibly fun. Yeah, you did. (laughs) And I, I, I think I was hooked. So I ended up going to university in northern Mexico, in the Gulf of California, um, to study marine science with a very big emphasis on fisheries. Um, At the time, Mexico was a country that was third world and very concerned about how to feed a growing population. So fisheries was something that they emphasized a lot. So what I learned was how to kill animals. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And of course, that didn't make me happy. That's what's a start. Um, so, so you, you started out then as a scientist, um, is that right? What were you doing in the early days? Yeah. So when I finally graduated from university, I knew that I didn't want to be part of the exploitation of the ocean. I wanted to be part Mm -hmm. of the conservation of the ocean. And I was very lucky. Um, my first husband is a scientist and he is very prolific, uh, contributor to the scientific literature and so he taught me how to write for the scientific literature and I contributed probably to six or seven scientific papers on conservation on how do we establish priorities for conservation when there's so limited resources both financial and human to actually do conservation work so how do you know where to emphasize where to put the money and uh, that I think that was the beginning of an a career that has span now almost three decades and mm-hmm. you know has reached everything from terrestrial biology to now more of the marine sciences and very excited now um, by the confluence of things like AI, satellite technology and uh, crypto blockchain uh, tools that are coming in line 
uh, we've never been in a place like we are now to really do right by our planet. I, I just read on your website, which is so dense and amazing and, and gives me so much info. And I, I don't want to just have you repeat everything that's on there, but <laughs> just to take a cue from Bits and Bobs, you had been doing science, but you, you realized that your knowledge as a scientist wasn't necessarily the right tool to help you do the things that you really wanted to do. Um, and then you sort of stumbled into photography. Was there a particular image moment experience that with photography that made you think, oh, okay, this is what I need? Or was it more like the lack of what you were experiencing with science alone? Can you talk a bit about that? You know, it was, uh, it was luck. Um, when I was working for Conservation International in the eight, early 1900s, 1900s, 1990s, <laughs> um, we used to share office space with a photographer, a very famous Mexican photographer. And just being uh, around him uh, started getting me more and more intrigued about the visuals that he was producing. And every year he would create a beautiful coffee table book on some conservation subject, usually having to do with Mexico. And this poor man didn't speak very well English. So he was asking me to help him with um, translations and writing captions and that kind of thing. When we finally had the book come out and there was a beautiful reception and that, you know, have you ever been to one of those where the book is in a big table and people come and browse through the pages? I realized that nobody was reading the science. Everybody was just reading, looking at the photographs. Mm -hmm. And then I was struck by how comfortable people were asking questions about the photographs. Mm -hmm. And I realized that science is a language that's not accessible to most people and people don't want to feel silly or, you know, unknowledgeable. So people generally recoil from it. Photography, mm -hmm. on the other hand, is so wonderful because we all speak a visual language and we're emotional creatures. So we can relate to what we see in a photograph and we feel comfortable asking questions about it. And I thought, if you want to reach a large audience of people to care about our planet, this is the perfect icebreaker. Mm -hmm. You Am I right to say then you went on to study photography for yourself and then did you sort of immediately begin to harness that in, in a sort of conservation with a conservation angle? Yeah, uh, but, but something interesting happened. I mean, at the time that I went back to school to study photography, I already had two children at home. I was a stay-at-home mother. Uh, writing from my basement, right? I was uh, desperately struggling to stay involved in conservation. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in school at the Corcoran College for the Arts was, was more of the fine art, the history of photography, and a lot of the tools that we had at the time, the wet laboratory, the printing lab. And, um, I, you know, I, I didn't understand it at the time that it was going to be such important training to actually do the conservation work that I was interested in. Can you talk about that then? What really transferred over? Yeah, so 1990s photography in the United States at that time, nature photography is dominated by middle-aged white men, a lot of them retired doctors and lawyers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. And there was all these conventions that were happening where people would come together to share their work and they had their portfolio reviews and big conferences to talk about the equipment. And I was trying to insert myself into that community and not being really successful because I could see that people were going to photograph polar bears and eagles and elephants and rhinos. And I would ask the question, can we use our photographs to try to protect the creatures and the spaces that we love? Mm -hmm. And they were really puzzled. They absolutely 
could not believe that I even dared ask that question. Mm -hmm. They said, well, environmentalism is very polarizing. This is not what we do here. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to start my own organization mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that deals with the photographers who do care about the environment. And it was shocking, Graham, because in my first conversations with photographers that were interested in conservation, they just happened to be the best photographers at the time. Mm -hmm. People with legacies like Art Wolf and Franz Lanting and uh, Nick Nichols and, you know, Joel Sartori. These, these were the yeah. photographers who were interested in conservation. So okay. it was with them that I started the International League of Conservation Photographers. Even my okay. own husband now, Paul. Yeah, I was, well, that was going to be my next kind of journey on your timeline. So I'm so inspired that you just, you find yourself as sort of an outsider and you just, well, you're going to start up your own thing. Definitely takes a woman to do that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> or so, an idiot, I don't know. But... No, come on, good for you. So when you got the International League of Conservation Photographers together, National Geographic was probably the only outlet that nature photographers had for their work. Mm -hmm. And it was back then, and it's still very difficult to get your work published by a magazine of such prestige as National Geographic. But I felt like there was work being produced by photographers like Robin Moore and others that mm -hmm. needed to be seen. And I, my thinking with the International League of Conservation Photographers was that building a platform that we could all use as a common you know, way of getting our work out there would be powerful, not just to talk about the work and the importance of conservation, the different issues from climate change to poaching, but also to raise money because there was such limited funding to go anywhere and do work on assignment for nature. Mm -hmm. It strikes me then when you say that to create a platform, that's the kind of thing somebody would say nowadays and people would understand exactly what that means. In 2005, maybe not, you know, so that seems like in itself quite a big idea. So were the other guys that you mentioned before, were they just, they got it, they were on board with you? Did they have the same willingness to, to go with it? It was so amazing because our first meeting uh, was in Alaska in 2005 and I was just a housewife, you know, I had never convened anything like this before. And we were in a hotel ballroom, as you can imagine, and I stepped up to the podium. And when I looked at the front row, they, they were all, you know, uh, people like David Dubelay and uh, even scientists like George Schaller and Jane Goodall uh, stopped by to see what the photographers wow. were talking about. And the, the concept of conservation photography didn't exist, but I knew that this was not just nature photography. I knew that nature photography deals with taking photographs of the natural world, and this was taking it one step further. It needed that purpose and that activism. You have to use the photographs and put them in front of the people that make decisions. And the first members of the ILCP were all perfect examples of how you do that. Their work was being translated into national parks and marine protected areas. Mm -hmm. So give us an example then of some of the wins that you had through harnessing that the power of those photographers in those yes. early days, sort of between the um, ILCP and, and Sea Legacy. Yeah, and, the, and it was a, a, a great moment. I remember having a meeting with all of these amazing photographers, very talented people, men and women. And I stood there thinking, you know, how do you deploy these people? How do, you, how do we get them to areas that are threatened before the bulldozers get there? Mm -hmm. And we came up with a concept called the RAVE, the Rapid Assessment Visual Expedition. So we would raise money and we would send three or four or five of the best photographers in the world 
and we would create a media buzz. You know, this is before, just at the beginnings of the internet. Mm -hmm. So these were still newspapers and television, but we were able to stop development in important places in Mexico, to stop mountaintop removal mining in British Columbia, to stop um, oil pipelines from traveling across the Great Bear Rainforest. We had a lot of success with just making nature and the environment news because the best photographers in the world were there together. So let's skip ahead then to 2014 and you founded, co-founded Sea Legacy. Um, what led to that then? Was there something you felt like it was a different mission maybe than ILCP or what was the beginning of Sea Legacy? ILCP was amazing and it's still something that I'm very proud of, but it got so big dealing with so many photographers. And at the same time, I, you know, had a, a personal transition. I got divorced. And at the same time, I met Paul Nicklin in National Geographic and I fell in love with him and I moved to Canada to be with him. So I left ILCP. Okay. <laughs> and I was here for six months thinking, wow, it's nice to not have to go to work. Mm -hmm. But then you start reading the news and you see how much desperation there is, urgency to do something for the natural world. And it was actually Paul who, who said, we need to do something. We, we were working for National Geographic at the time and it felt like uh, working for a year on a story and then having it published in the magazine, having it there for a month and then it would go away and nothing would happen. Mm -hmm. So we started Sea Legacy in the basement of this house without really having a plan, Graham. We didn't know what we wanted to do. We just knew that we had an ability to tell stories and communicate, and we wanted to put that in service of the ocean. Were you guys pitching stories to National Geographic? That's how I understand it from talking to Jim. Um, and were, were you both being sent out together? Because that's kind of a quite a strong tag team that you know to have on board. It started. Um, it started with me going with Paul as his assistant and fixer. The first okay. story that we did together was in 2010, Manatees. Okay. And um, little by little, uh, Paul really advocated very strongly that the editors look at my work because I was shooting alongside with him. And eventually they started sending us both of us. Uh, mm. The last story we did together was Antarctica. But there, it was a mix. Uh, some of the stories were assignments that the uh, director of photography had given Paul specifically. Because I don't know if you remember... Uh, what was his name? Very famous cave diver photographer who died in a cave diving accident. No, he died on a regular diving accident, okay. like at 40 feet. And they needed somebody to replace him. And they thought Paul could do a good job. So we ended up doing three assignments in the Yucatan that were very technical cave diving for which right. Paul trained. But the rest were stories that we pitched. We pitched the story on the blob which was when the Pacific Ocean got really warm and so many animals were dying. And uh, yeah, we did a number with a beautiful story on Hawaii, the relationship that Hawaiian people have with the ocean. And that was the first time that I was able to put some of my skills with indigenous people photography to help uh, bring the assignment to life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're beautiful images. So, okay, to jump forward back, back to where we were then. Um, for Sea Legacy, I, I saw this on the Sea Legacy website, our mission is to create healthy and abundant oceans for us and the planet, which was a really small sentence, but like a huge scope. Um, I think that was the thing that really struck me with the work of Sea Legacy. And when you dive into to it, like, 
that's a lot, you know. So um, I wonder if you can just really unpack what you guys are doing and, and kind of how you go how you go about it. Yeah, uh, it's uh, important to note first that the ocean covers 72% of our planet and it harbors over 50% of its biodiversity. All life emerged from the ocean, you know, millions of years ago. And today, every single creature that lives on this planet depends on a healthy ocean. It regulates our climate. It provides food for three and a half billion people. It's really important. But there's um, a distance between humans and the ocean. We don't consider ourselves ocean creatures. And yet we all depend on it. So we wanted to find a framework that, for Sea Legacy to help tell stories about the role that the ocean plays and to try to bring attention to the many issues that are affecting ocean health. Because we are in a moment in our history where we're grappling with a, a carbon problem on our atmosphere. Mm. And the carbon problem, you can imagine it is a tub that's full of carbon and we need to do two things. We need to turn, turn off the tap so it's to cut emissions and 90% of the conversation is focused on that. You know, how are we going to transition to renewable energy? But the other problem is how do we train, drain the top? How do we get rid of all that carbon that's already there? Mm -hmm. And that's where the ocean plays an enormous role. As today, the ocean absorbs 25% of all emissions mm -hmm. and 50% of the heat, the excess heat. And it can only do that if it's alive. Um, it also produces 50% of the oxygen we breathe. So if you take a breath, you know, your next breath is going to be <laughs> mm -hmm. courtesy of the ocean. Right. And I came up on a paper by a scientist who has become a very good friend, um, Dr. Carlos Duarte. And he had led a team of scientists to write a paper called Restoring Marine Life. And in that paper, he gave us the recipe for how to restore health and abundance to the ocean in a single generation. Mm -hmm. And I found that really compelling. So I thought if Sea Legacy can tell stories about this and we can inspire and guide the actions that need to be taken, then that's a contribution we can make. You know, as a founder, you must have like an administrative kind of role in that organization. But do you still get to go hands on with photography projects? You know, I'm very lucky that I do not have an administrative role. I hired a brilliant CEO to do that for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, as, as I think you become the figurehead of the organization. You're there to tell the story of what's happening uh, and the projects that we're doing. But I do get to go on expedition. So we are very lucky. We have the Sea Legacy One, our beautiful catamaran. Mm -hmm. And you can follow our adventures on YouTube if you look for Sea Legacy, the voyage. Oh, great. Okay. And uh, yeah, we're leaving on expedition in three weeks uh, back to Baja and the Gulf of California, which is where I started my career as a marine scientist. So mm -hmm. it's very exciting to go back this time to actually do conservation work. What will that project entail? Yeah, this is a very exciting project. We are supporting Mexican conservation organizations that are advocating for the creation of a very large marine protected area that envelops the whole southern tip of the Gulf of California, of Baja, sorry. Okay. This is going to be uh, a way of supporting the livelihoods of local fishermen and tourism, of course, but it's going to keep the industrial fishing fleets that are so destructive 50 kilometers away from the coast. Mm -hmm. 
this will give a chance to the big wildlife, the blue whales, the fin whales, the humpback whales that come in, all the schools of mobula rays, manta rays that, you know, need to survive in the Gulf of California. This will give them a chance. Okay, so that's it's a huge area for biodiversity just in that in that small area. Yeah. yeah. And it's a whale congregation area. There's nine species of whales, more than any other uh, body of water in the ocean. Right. So for for your project, I mean, how are you going to go about that? What's the sort of brief for you? Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing we have to do is identify all our audiences. And, of course, we have a very important international audience that needs to, you know, hear for the, about the Gulf of California for the first time. So mm-hmm. we do that in a very entertaining way. It's an invitation to adventure, a first glimpse into the lives of these amazing animals. But then we have a Mexican audience that's very different. Mm-hmm. And that's an audience of the local fishermen, the local government officials. Uh, it's a delicate conversation. And mm-hmm. that happens all, I mean, through video, through interviews. Uh, we have to remember this is not our project. We're, this is something we're supporting. So You touched on it earlier, but I was wondering how you choose, and in such a, the scope of the work being so big, how you choose stories to zero in on. Um, how it's funded and how you just continue to get the work out, the word out. Presumably social media is a, a big deal for getting things out there. That must be make things a lot easier than, you know, a few years ago. But in terms of zeroing in on, okay, which story are we going to choose here? How do you weigh that up? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't think anybody has ever asked me that, Grant. Oh, really? <laughs> <Very> <laughs> yeah. um, we go back to that scientific paper by Dr. Carlos Duarte. He talks about six courses of action that humanity needs to take. So mm-hmm. if if the project falls within one of those six wedges, they're called, uh, then we take it on. And the six wedges are, uh, we need to protect more of the ocean. We need to protect more species. We need to stop the flow of pollution uh, from entering the ocean. We need to rethink fishing and industrial fishing in particular. We need to restore the habitats that have been destroyed like coral reefs and mangroves. And the most important one is we need to recast the ocean as a solution to climate change. I don't think the international community grasps the enormity of the role that the ocean plays. So Mm -hmm. you barely see it reflected in the IPCC or the Biden administration's mandates. So our job is to make it big. And then we came up with a seventh wedge, and that is we have to achieve ocean justice. This has to benefit the local people that live on the edge of the sea. Mm -hmm. That seems big to me, the local aspect of it. It's yeah. huge. So our stories always fall within one of those six, seven wedges. Okay. But I was just um, thinking, because you mentioned, you know, like the national administration, and then when you said the local, I mean, governments are not getting this done, really. I mean, maybe you could know more about that than I am, but as an outsider, it doesn't seem like some of these big problems are really being solved or tackled adequately by governments. But I, it seems to me that maybe harnessing the local on a small, smaller scale might be more of a powerful way to go about it. What do you think? I think I think we have to do both. Um, governments in general do not tend to move very fast, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of special interests that they need to grapple with. So going local and having local wins is really important. Now, there's some governments, like I mean, the government of Panama is amazing. It's populated by young people. Mm-hmm. And these young people are very passionate about the environment, so they're making things happen fast. Okay. Other governments are just still dragging their feet. But uh, we're really entering a new era um, 
with uh, the advent of blockchain cryptocurrency to decentralize the power that the government has and that the banks have to make better decisions that benefit uh, nature and that bring us closer to harmony with our planet. So I'm very excited by the concept of um, refi, which is redefining the role that money plays in our economy to include nature and to benefit nature. Okay, I I'm, I don't really know what blockchain I'll send you a link. Is. Yeah, no, but I just wonder if is there a, a quick way to unpack some of that so that someone like me can really understand what that means. Yes, there's a wonderful podcast. It's called the Refi Podcast. Okay. R E F I. Refi stands for redefining the role that money plays okay. in our economy. Okay, but and, but that is something that's you're going to allow you to finance the work that you need to do more effectively. Uh, in a way, yeah. I mean, we have a rainbow of sources of, of income, which include uh, foundation money, individual money. We have a large community of small dollar donors, people that want to donate $5, $10 a month to help tell these stories. Mm-hmm. And then we have corporations that are also financing our work. So we'll take money from wherever we can, because you know the problem, uh, Graham. The ocean, uh, which is SDG 14, the Sustainable Development Goal number 14, is the most underfunded of all the Sustainable Development Goals. So there's not enough money to do the conservation work that needs to be done, and there's not enough money to tell the story of why. So, I mean, what we need to do is raise a lot more money for the ocean. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, um, I mean, all of us, we realize that the future is kind of in jeopardy, and someone might be concerned really well-meaning good person but we've got you know kids running around elderly parents family to feed job to go to all the challenges and demands that are on people and they might just feel sort of overwhelmed by thinking like what can I really do so asking for a friend what kind of simple things can individuals do that could really help to make a difference in what you're doing Yes, that's a wonderful question, Graham. And I I, uh, have actually thought about this a lot. And it really comes down to having an internal conversation with yourself about your own connection to your planet and to each other, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where the concept of enoughness comes from. It's uh, something that I observed in indigenous communities and people that live in remote locations because they really rely on each other. And they rely on a series of things that are not material. They don't have to do with a bigger job or a bigger house. It's more about uh, personal connection. It's more about commitment to each other. It's more about the contribution that one makes. And that sense of enoughness, sense of belonging, sense of connection to our planet is the first step. Because once you've stopped feeling yourself as a separate thing, you know, then you start thinking about ways that you can help. And it starts at home with the purchases we make, with the choices of the food that we uh, take. And, you know, I don't advocate for people to become vegetarian, but we certainly don't need to be eating so much red meat mm-hmm. to understand where the fish that we eat comes from. And, and just to support the conservation work, you know, with whatever $1, $5, you know, pick an organization and make sure that we are all contributing. I'm really glad that you said that because I really wanted to talk to you about enoughness. I I saw this on your website. It really struck me. Just the words sort of says everything. It's something that's been on my mind as as a, you know, we live in a consumerist kind of world. 
can you talk about where the genesis of that idea really landed with you um, in, in your journey? Yeah, I mean, it really started from just observing because I, when I was living in the United States, I think I was almost like like indoctrinated into this type of behavior, which is yeah. very consumer oriented. Well, we are. It's kind of surrounded. And it's based on competition and it's based on feeling inadequate by you, you don't have enough, you know, you don't have the best of and you need more of. And we know that that does tremendous damage to our planet. But we I mean, what are the tools that we have to overcome that type of feeling? And this sense of cultivating enoughness in ourselves is a wonderful way. It allows you to look at the stuff and say, you know what? I don't really need it. This is not going to make me happier. What does make me happy is to have a connection to my family, to be a good member of my community, to do work that's meaningful and that I enjoy, to contribute back to society. I mean, these are the things that make us whole humans. So making a small list of those things and practicing them personally, you know, this is something that we don't get to preach to others. Whatever makes you enough is mm -hmm. your own metric, but I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. So how has practicing enoughness changed or affected your own life? You know, for me, enoughness and what brings me a sense of being enough is the purpose of my career. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have been incredibly lucky to do what I love, which is also what I'm good at, which is also what gets me paid and which is also what the planet needs. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese call that finding your ikigai. The purpose of your life okay <laughs> and it's it's easy to do if you can answer those four questions <laughs> yeah that's amazing so you're like the equivalent of one of those japanese master craftsmen people who have been at it for like 90 years you're in your flow right i'm in my flow i don't get up in the morning to work i get up in the morning to fulfill the purpose of my life amazing okay let's this is actually you wouldn't believe a photography show so we're gonna uh <laughs> this is the gear round okay so i know that you're a sony ambassador i am yeah and um so i can imagine and for the work that you do you've got all the stuff right so let's just bring it down to what camera are you using and what's the lens that you pick up that you just you reach for and you're like yeah this is my lens this is the one i like to use you know i um I'm a minimalist photographer. I don't like to carry stuff, especially as I'm getting older. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I try to pare down things. My go-to camera, and I think this is going to be my forever camera, is the Sony Alpha One. It's an incredible piece of equipment that I use both for above water and underwater. Mm -hmm. Above water, I have three or four lenses. Um, I like a couple of long lenses, 100 to 400. You know, sometimes there's whales in the distance. But my favorite lens is the 24 to 70. Okay. This is a normal range. I use that for a lot of my portrait photography. And then underwater, we have to go to the wide angle. So I have two lenses, uh, 12 to 24. Uh, they're all Sony. And a 16 to 35. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> that's it. Uh, I, you know, of course, I use strobes and I use flashes every once in a while. But... I learned a long time ago, Graham, that to be a good photographer is to understand and use the equipment that you have mm -hmm. and not to carry all the gizmos that, you know, are shortcuts for doing the work. Yeah. It's like photography enoughness. You've got it going. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Okay, thank you for that. I'll put links to the Sony gear in the show notes. Just to keep it moving, the next round we will actually talk about photography. So this is called Double Exposure. I'm going to ask you about a particular image and the story behind it. Then I'll bounce it back to you to tell me about one that, you know, really means something to you. I know you're, uh, you know, underwater is kind of your thing, but it's really hard for me to go past the lady with the goose on her head. Um, she, yeah, everybody must ask you, right? So it's the, to describe the picture, it's kind of a black background. The lady's sort of in, in profile. I think she's wearing red. I'm colorblind, but I'm pretty sure it's red. And looks very nice. She looks really like she's going somewhere nice, but she's got a goose on her head. So <laughs> what's going on with that picture? You know, it's it's um it was one of the first photographs that I ever made. You know, when you're learning to be a photographer, you're snapping a lot of stuff. You get a couple of flukes and this was one of those for mm. me. I was in southern China, southwest China, the Yunnan province, very remote. And I had seen this little Yashica single reflex camera for mm-hmm. sale in a street market. And I bought it and it came with a handful of rolls of 120. And I was literally learning how to use it. So right. I was sitting in a market and I'm fooling around with this thing. And you know how you look at a single reflex from a top and the image is inverted. Mm-hmm. I saw her walking right towards me. She was coming down the street with her red dress and she had this goose in her head. So I very quietly got up <laughs> from my chair and I walked towards her and I signaled to her, can I take your picture? And she said, yes. And it was just one of those lucky moments. She was walking right in front of a big warehouse that had doors open. And behind her, okay. there were people working. There was somebody, a little fire. People were sitting down to eat, but it was like four stops underexposed mm-hmm. so I just exposed for her face and I took three shots you know one two and I didn't look at the film for months after I came home um, eventually I sent it to be developed and when it came back three frames two the goose is panicking <laughs> and the third one it just looks like I took it in a studio yeah. and she's perfectly still the animal is still and it's just the most whimsical thing that <laughs> woman with that goose on her head it's so it's kind of surreal isn't it but that's a great story we've i'm there's always you must get this like every now and again you look at the picture and you're like well okay that's really good just don't ask any questions um yeah and and months later i i, I a friend of mine went by the same village and he sent me something that he took just with a snapshot and it, she was there with the goose so my uh, curiosity as to what happened to the goose because i didn't know if he was going to the pot or if he was a pet mm-hmm. but the goose <laughs> still lived, lived. amazing <laughs> so <laughs> okay let me ask you if you if you don't mind about one more because this will put you back in your kind of comfort zone there's a picture i saw um of marine iguanas in the galapagos and i think it was i saw it on instagram and the caption was the, along the lines of it reminded you why you got into this in the first place so i thought that may be a nice one to ask you about. It's obviously a striking image. Um, there's a, a few fish kind of going over the top and in the background, and these animals just look so incredible under the water. Um, do you remember that experience? Oh, God, that wasn't so long ago, Graham. That was uh, last year. We uh, were very lucky to take the Sea Legacy 1 to the Galapagos Islands, where the government uh, facilitated for us to explore and dive in some of the most remote islands that people don't generally go so this was taken off the island of Fernandina uh, that has a population of these endemic marine iguanas. 
and surprisingly hard to photograph because they love to feed in shallow water mm -hmm. where the surge of the ocean is hitting the rocks and it's like a washing machine. Right. So it's dangerous and is very hard to do, mm -hmm. but irresistible because these creatures are so prehistoric, but they're also fragile. They so only feed on seaweed that grows uh, off the shore. They have no food on land and the slightest temperature change in the water will kill the seaweed. So very fragile existence. Mm -hmm. um, it reminds me of why this is so urgent, why it's so important. We've already lost or are losing 50% of biodiversity on planet Earth. We need to try to protect everything that we have left. That's that's really brings it home when you think of a species that's so um, on the edge like that. Um, let me throw it back to you then, Christina. This is a hard question, but if there's a particular, if you think back over everything that you've done, just what comes to you is like that was a great moment, a great experience. I've had so so many amazing, great experiences. You know, on the positive side, to spend time with uh, pods of sperm whales. They're matriarchal communities led by a big female, usually made up all, all females except for the really young males. And to watch them uh, coexist and play and feed and take turns taking care of the babies and to be part of it is just incredible. On the bad side, uh, you know, an image like the starving polar bear mm -hmm. that we took in 2017 with the intention of, of sharing with the world just how emotionally painful it is to watch an animal die. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it could have been from climate change. It could have been from a trophy hunter. We don't know. Either way, you know, we cannot afford to lose more creatures. So polar bears need to be protected. And surprisingly, they're not. So, Right. It's quite, yeah, it's quite a, it's such a striking image to go to the polar bear. One of the things, obviously, the, 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 the bear is not in good shape. But when you see he's on like grass or, or foliage, it's just it's incongruous. You know, it doesn't it shouldn't be, you know, it should That's be on snow. It should, yeah. yeah, that's my only big word. Um, yeah. so it just doesn't make sense, you know, visually it's sort of jarring uh, as well. So, and, and that was a powerful image for you. That one really took off, I believe. Yeah, and it was the first time um, that I, an image of mine went viral. And uh, it was a very interesting glimpse into the internet and how people have all these opinions about our planet. There were, of course, a lot of people who care and who are very concerned about what's happening. There are a lot of people who still don't believe that climate change is a problem. Mm -hmm. And and so getting a glimpse into how disparate opinions are is uh, how polarized we are as humans makes ideas like enoughness more important than ever. In, mm -hmm. A huge part of enoughness is just being kind to each other because we have nowhere else to go, nobody else to depend on except mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, I think you're really onto something, Christina, with your whole <laughs> vibe. This has been so much fun for me. I'm super grateful for your time. If you don't mind, I've got a few quick questions to finish off in the quick fire Go round. For it, of course. This is, the round is called motor drive because, you know, it's a photography term for going fast. Um, yes. But you don't really need to go fast. So, okay, wide angle or telephoto? Wide angle. Expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt? expensive lens cloth yeah i was thinking you were gonna be a shirt girl um no. <laughs> okay you gotta look after those uh, sony lenses right so okay, especially when you're in remote areas you can't afford to scratch them so yeah okay i can understand that 
What is your go-to emoji? Um, the jellyfish emoji. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay, so kind of leads to my next question. If you were a sea creature, what one would you be? Like spirit animal? What sort of jellyfish? You know, when all other creatures have gone extinct and humans have disappeared, jellyfish will be con they will have conquered the ocean. They are such survivors, so adaptable. They have many ways of reproducing, both sexually and asexually. They can constrict their body to only 10% of their body side when there's no food. And when there's food, they grow again. And they're amazing. Okay. okay. Can you do all those things as well? No. <laughs> but if I could. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So my daughter is kind of into jellyfish. So we live on the coast here on the east coast of Scotland. It's the North Sea. Um, it's quite good actually we get dolphins come right in about to the harbour you can there's like a big dolphin watch kind of project nice. um, just next to the city it's amazing um, but we have a small bay called Cove Bay just where we live and um, Zuri my daughter wanted to go and see jellyfish the other day I don't know where she because we'd seen them there before like sometimes they wash six, up or sometimes right? you just see them sorry she's only six She's six, yeah, yeah. She's so, so curious. I, I don't think there's any other creature on this planet that has a more interesting life life cycle than a jellyfish. So I I dare you to try to explain it to her. Yeah, jellyfish. But she's so curious at the moment, and you know she's really into ancient Egypt at the moment. She's really, really into that. Well, the Red Sea just off of Egypt is one of the most productive and beautiful in the world too. So okay, where were we at? I was gonna. I like to ask people about music, local music. I know you live in Canada, but what would be the and because I'm asking this because I know the best Canadian musician is Brian Adams, but I don't know what the best Mexican musician is. <laughs> You're making a face. Well, first, you know, Brian Adams is a friend, and he's uh, not just an amazing musician; he's also an amazing photographer. I don't know if you know that. I, you know, I recently emailed studio at Brian Adams to ask, just to ask. I know that he's not going to reply, but yeah, Why? I'd love to. I'd love to, but. Because he's you know. also an incredible animal activist and environmentalist, so. Right, yeah, I, but I, he's a great photographer. I really would like to talk to him about his photography. Yeah. Um, but understand, you know. Busy so guy, for me, I, my husband and I, Paul and I, have been on a Lumineers binge for the last year. Mm -hmm. And we've actually become friends with, uh, with Jeremiah Freitas and Wellesley Schultz, <laughs> the Lumineers. Okay. Because they too care a lot about animals and the environment, and um, it's pretty awesome. But but I am a, a girl from the '80s, and so Queen is my favorite band. Okay, um, cool. The old bands: Meatloaf, Boston. Uh, music of today, I love Billie Eilish. So, mm -hmm. cool. Okay, cool. Um, uh, what's a weird thing I could find in your camera bag? Oh, I have a Garmin inReach uh, device that allows me to text with my office regardless of where I am. That's practical, though. Yeah, do you need that? Um, okay, last two questions. What Name a photographer that people should know, should go and check out, your field or in another field. A photographer that people should go check out. There's so many. Um, I want to I wanna point out to a female photographer, somebody who's breaking waves. I, I've been really intrigued by the wor work of a woman named uh, Monaris, M-O-N-A-R-I-S. And she is rocking the NFT world with her work and the street photography, and it's beautiful. And um, yeah, Monaris. Okay, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. This is the last question. Christina Mittermeier. Mitty, if I can call you that. When do you feel at peace with the universe? 
you know, right here where I am right now, home on the coast of British Columbia, looking out into the Salish Sea under the shade of old growth forest um, at home. Great answer. So grateful. I could have talked to you about so many, many other things. When you said Salish, there was another project that I was going to talk about. But um, this must be the episode where photography featured the least. But I loved it. It was totally fantastic <laughs> to meet you and hear about what you do. Very inspiring. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Graham. Can I say one last thing? Yeah. Our planet needs an army of storytellers telling what's happening to the world. So I encourage every photographer who's listening to find the purpose of your work, practice enoughness, and help us tell the story of our planet. Change the story and how it ends. Thank you so much for listening. Follow Christina and Sea Legacy on Instagram and YouTube and check out the Sea Legacy website to find out how you can get involved and support the work. Links to everything we spoke about are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, check out my conversations with Robin Moore, Alex Mustard and George Steinmetz. That's all for now. Look out for the re-releases of my favourite episodes over the winter. And I'll be back early in 2023 with a whole new batch of episodes. As always, take care, enjoy your photography, and I'll see you out there.